Thank you for listening to the Restory Care March 2018 podcast. This month's Editor's Choice by Lam et al. evaluates high flow nasal cannula therapy following ventilator liberation. One group received high flow nasal cannula immediately following extubation, while the other only if oxygen requirements exceeded 4 liters a minute. The early use of high flow nasal cannula was associated with a decrease in pulmonary infection and a reduction in the use of bronchodilator therapy. The second group demonstrated shorter ICU stay and fewer hospital days. Dries suggests that early use of high flow nasal cannula could facilitate secretion clearance with a potential decrease in pulmonary pathogens and exposure to gram-negative bacteria. These findings support the growing use of high flow nasal cannula in the ICU. It also begs the question, what beneficial effects might be gained from heating and humidifying low-flow oxygen in the hospital? Takemitsu and colleagues compared ambient noise levels of three high-flow nasal cannula systems with and without the use of a filter. The Venturi high-flow nasal cannula systems created the highest noise levels, which were attenuated by use of a filter. The high-flow nasal cannula system with an integral compressor had the lowest noise level. These systems can create noise levels equivalent to a garbage disposal. The impact of noise on patient comfort and sleep needs to be addressed. Takagi and Nishimura point out these levels exceed those recommended in the hospital and that improvements in respiratory function must be balanced against the potential negative impact on the body as a whole. Non-invasive ventilation has been one of the important advances in mechanical ventilation over the past two decades. Long-term NIV has shown advantages for patients with neuromuscular disease, but success over time remains a concern. Sue and colleagues evaluated the five-year maintenance rates of NIV in 180 subjects with neuromuscular disease. They found that NIV was applied for a similar duration across most of the subjects with continued success across the five-year study. However, progression of ALS requires increased support, including transition to invasive ventilation. An accompanying editorial discusses this natural progression of ALS and how, despite a desire to avoid tracheostomy, invasive ventilation plays an important role in prolonged treatment. Prolonged mechanical ventilation as a marker of critical illness is a consequence of improved ICU care. Hare and Bertrand found that prolonged mechanical ventilation was associated with weaning failure, readmissions, and mortality. A third of prolonged mechanical ventilation subjects required readmission to the ICU within the first year. These data suggest caution regarding prolonged mechanical ventilation and the value of assessing patient important outcomes. Berlinski and colleagues evaluate the shaking and actuation of a metered dose inhaler on the admitted dose of fluticasone with a holding chamber. They demonstrated that delays between shaking and actuating corticosteroid suspensions results in an increase in the admitted dose of the second actuation. This may occur commonly with MDI administration with a holding chamber. This work highlights the importance of caregiver and patient education on metered dose inhaler use. Awad and Berlinski evaluate the impact of jet nebulizer and compressor combinations on albuterol delivery. They measured flow and pressure generated by the compressor and nebulizer particle size output with various nebulizer-compressor combinations. Their results suggest that nebulizer brand is more important than compressor brand on inhaled mass and particle size. They caution caregivers to be aware of unintended consequences when altering compressor and nebulizer combinations. Sanservino et al. evaluated the self-selected walking speed in healthy and COPD subjects. By assessing oxygen consumption normalized by mass and distance, they found that COPD subjects had an increase in dyspnea sensation with increased walking speed. They conclude that COPD patients choose their walking speed according to a tolerable dyspnea sensation and that interventions affecting dyspnea and gait might improve quality of life. The incremental shuttle walk test can be administered using a treadmill or in a hallway. 
In either case, the results are used to tailor the exercise prescription. Oliveria and colleagues compared these methods in subjects with bronchiectasis and found that methods were not interchangeable. There was an increased walking distance using the treadmill, but similar physiologic responses. These data are important in assessing the response to aerobic training. Exercise training improved strength and quality of life in subjects with COPD. In 16 subjects with COPD, Leite et al. evaluated the critical velocity in a non-exhaustive manner as a surrogate for the anaerobic threshold test. While subjects tolerated exercise at critical velocity and there was good correlations with oxygen consumption and heart rate, the tests were not reliably reproduced. The critical velocity has the potential advantage of allowing the subject to perform a sub-maximal exertion. Further investigation to tailor this method in COPD is warranted. Travel with portable oxygen improves the quality of life for patients requiring long-term oxygen therapy. Campbell and colleagues surveyed a group of subjects receiving long-term oxygen therapy regarding planning travel with oxygen and their travel experiences. In 50 subjects who responded to the survey, only a quarter had traveled by air. The majority found it complicated to organize their trip and difficult to find information regarding travel with O2. Yet over 80% said they would fly again. The accuracy of O2 flow meters is assumed in calibration of these devices is typically not within the caregiver's purview. Deprez et al. evaluated the accuracy of O2 flow delivered from oxygen cylinders and pre-hospital and hospital emergency care. They evaluated flows from 2 to 12 liters a minute. Their results suggest that flow meters provide flows sufficiently accurate for clinical use. They did find that single-stage regulators were less accurate at low flows and low cylinder pressures. Cacao compared the maximum walking distance during the six-minute walk test in healthy children in Brazil. In a study of nearly 1,500 subjects, they established reference values. Boys walk slightly further than girls. The strength of the study is in the sample size and the use of volunteers from a large country with a varying climatic, socioeconomic, and cultural regions. This month's narrative review concerns the effectiveness of incentive spirometry in preventing postoperative pulmonary complications. The introduction of incentive spirometry occurred with only scant evidence, and the in, in the ensuing decades, little has been done to support its routine use. Altori and his co-workers correctly point out, in concert with the AARC practice guidelines, that the use of incentive spirometry postoperatively is not supported by high-level evidence. Respiratory therapists spend a lot of time coaching incentive spirometry, a therapy that is, in fact, may have little effect. We should reevaluate the use of incentive spirometry in at-risk subjects and look for more evidence-based alternatives. This month's systematic review looks at patient-reported outcomes related to symptom burden in cystic fibrosis. These authors identify five patient-reported outcomes related to CF exacerbations in the literature. They find that only two of these measures were specifically developed to measure symptoms during exacerbations, and only one meets all the FDA guideline criteria. The authors conclude that an instrument to assess exacerbation-specific symptoms and CF remains to be developed. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.